Amen, huh? Take your Bible and open to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. I welcome you if you're with us uh, on the uh, live stream, and thank you for those who are here in the auditorium. Luke chapter 1. Just a few <clears throat> verses here by way of introduction. Uh, verse 76. Luke 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sin, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. If you've been with us, uh, you know that before Christmas, we started into a short series that I entitled The Chronological Look at the birth of the Savior. This is the fourth part of that series. We're trying to look at the um, uh, different accounts of the story of the birth of Christ and trying to bring them together in a chronological, continuous, uh, historical fashion. And we began by looking at the anticipation of the birth of the Savior, the preexistence of uh, the Savior from the Old Testament standpoint, from the standpoint of eternity, again, from various Old Testament texts. Uh, Then we went to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, it traces Jesus' genealogy back uh, to King David through Solomon down to Joseph, who's not physically related uh, to Jesus because of the virgin birth, but is of the royal uh, bloodline or the royal uh, line of uh, ascension, and, therefore, and, and also the legal guardian of Jesus. Therefore, that gives Jesus the legal right to the throne of David. And then we looked at the genealogy out of Luke chapter 3, which is actually traces the physical bloodlines, the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, Again, back through David, through Solomon, uh, to Nathan's, uh, to Nathan, which is Solomon's older brother. So the royal bloodline, again, from Jesus down to, uh, from David to Jesus, from uh, Mary, who is, again, the mother of Christ. So both lines establish that Jesus is the king of Israel by legal right and by blood right. Then last time we were together, it's been a few weeks, we uh, turned here to this portion of scripture in Luke. We began to work our way through this uh, text and we saw that it really is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's called Zechariah's Song of Salvation. Sometimes it's known as Zechariah's Benedictus or his blessing. It is a thrilling portion of Scripture. It is loaded with a profound theological truth. Luke, who is a physician, is turned a theologian and historical author, and he's directed by the person of the Holy Spirit uh, to record for us this praise of God that Zechariah uh, spoke forth. And you'll remember the scene. Zacharias is an old man. He's a priest. He's a true believer. He's not a part of the apostate uh, Judaism of Christ's time. He's not part of the Pharisaical party. He's uh, not a legalist. He's not trying to pursue self-righteousness, but he's a real deal. He's a real deal. He's a true believer, genuine believer. He's married to Elizabeth, a godly woman. The two of them have never been able to have children in their old age, however, somewhere between probably 70s and 80s even. Uh, God will allow a, a, a conception miracle uh, to occur. Elizabeth will conceive in her old age. She'll become pregnant. She'll carry the child all the way to full term and give birth. And the child who uh, Zacharias is actually holding in his hands at this point of our story is eight days old. And he's going to grow up and be none other than John the Baptist, the prophet who's the forerunner of the Messiah, the one whom God would send in the world to announce the Messiah's arrival and to prepare men's hearts for the coming of the Savior. Now, again, remember in the story, God's been silent for 400 years. Uh, There hasn't been a prophet in Israel for that time. There hasn't been any miracles in about 500 years. And when Zacharias performs his uh, daily uh, duties at the temple, uh, beginning of uh, chapter 1 of Luke, he's uh, confronted by an angel, which obviously surprises him and puts him with... uh, fills him full of fear when the angel stands in his presence and then the angel tells him that he and his wife Elizabeth are going to have a child. And you know the story that Zacharias has a difficult time believing this. He doesn't believe the messenger of God, therefore he finds himself perhaps both deaf and dumb until the birth of his son. Elizabeth conceives exactly as the angel Gabriel uh, said she would. And about six months or so into her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel arrives again on the scene, but this time to Mary, who is a virgin, but who by the power of the Holy Spirit will have a child. Luke 1 verse 31 says a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Obviously, uh, Joseph is a little disturbed that his uh, uh, wife-to-be is uh, pregnant, and he gets an explanation of that. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, 
saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, saying uh, that what was spoken by the prophet, and by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin will be the child, shall bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means translated God with us. So Jesus is that same person, God with us, Emmanuel. Now, Zacharias is aware of all this, right? Because he's aware of the miraculous birth of his own son, uh, who is the forerunner of the Messiah. He knows that with his son are tied all the hopes and dreams of the nation of Israel for the Messiah, and they're about to be realized. He also knows that uh, Mary is with child, that the Messiah is being formed in her womb because Mary has been staying with he and his wife Elizabeth for the last three months. So most certainly she must have told them about these events and these angelic visitation and obviously they can see that she is uh, with child now Zacharias in the story is just overflowing with joy and praise because he realizes that God's work that uh, that, that God is at work that God is in the midst of these events and God is bringing forth to fruition the promises that he has made both to Abraham and to David for the salvation of his people now there's a lot here and I'm going to try to move uh, rather uh, fast uh, through uh, some of it. We covered uh, a good portion of it at last time. But just to set the context, again, go back up and look at verse 67. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Now, again, Zechariah is an Old Testament scholar. He knows what's going on here. He understands that he is a part of this most monumental point in redemptive history. He understands that the coming of the forerunner, the, uh, uh, John the Baptist, his son is linked with the coming of the Messiah himself, who again is now even being formed in Mary's womb. He knows that God is interfering in the affairs of men, that God is inaugurating or beginning to bring into existence the potential fulfillment of all the promises that he has made, the blessings that he has promised both to Abraham and David through their covenants. These covenants that God made to Abraham and to David were made with the nation of Israel first, but the overflow, overflow of the blessings from them come to the entire world, to the Gentile nations who believe in God by faith. So Zechariah begins to praise God. Again, verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Now why is he blessing the Lord God of Israel? Verse, uh, the, con- the verse continues, for here's the reason. For he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So Zechariah is saying, look, with the arrival of his own son, the redemption that had long been promised, long been waited for, is now secured, although it hasn't yet been ratified. The Messiah's forerunner is only eight days old. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, has not been born. But so confident is Zechariah in the word of God that God will do exactly what God promises to do he speaks as uh, as if redemption has already taken place. He's that confident in God, that confident in God, because again he knows that the birth of his son, which is again miraculous, signals the fact that God is visiting His people, that God is bringing forth the provisions that He has promised for the salvation of His people. He has visited us and accomplished redemption, and that word redemption means uh, or speaks of loosing that which is bound or freeing from prison providing deliverance by payment of a ransom. Of course, the ransom price is going to be a very high price. It's going to be the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, even before the Redeemer is born and crucified, Zacharias is so confident in faith, with faith in the Word of God, so much so that he speaks as, that these, as if these yet future events are uh, uh, past tense. They've already happened. And that's important for us to just understand on a genuine, general level, right, that God keeps His Word. Everything that God tells us He's going to do, He's going to do. He'll bring it to pass. We can count on it. In a world that is crumbling, in a world that has no stability, we know one who gives us that stability. Again, a God who speaks and cannot lie. So we have hope and confidence in anything and everything that God says in his word. So Zacharias begins to praise God because he knows that God's eternal rescue operation, if you will, is being a, has come in the time. The nation of Israel, yes, it's a, a rebellious group, a disobedient group for thousands of years, hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, they've uh, failed to keep his promises, but God keeps his promises, right? They fail to obey God. They're a rebellious nation. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us, accomplished redemption for his people. Verse 69 again, he has raised up, right? And raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. 
Now, again, I told you to understand redemptive history, you have to understand that God made promises in the Old Testament, covenants with Israel, pledges that would be and will be literally fulfilled. And again, God keeps his word. There are six specific covenants in the Old Testament named as such in the Bible. Three of them, the Noahic, the Mosaic, and the priestly covenants, have no salvific element in them, meaning that salvation is not inherent in them. But there are salvific promises in the Davidic, Abrahamic, and then the New Covenant. All have components connected to salvation. But the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenant can't come to pass until there is salvation. And the New Covenant is the covenant of salvation, which affects all of the rest. But you can't receive the benefits of the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant until you receive salvation. So all these are tied together. And if we might not see it, it's only because we don't understand the Old Testament as well as Zacharias does. Zacharias sees it, and that's why he's rejoicing. Right? He's obviously singing the, uh, in joy for the fact that he has a son, but he understands who that son is, and he understands that he, in his praise of God, that God is the one who is about to bring all these things to pass. He understands, again, he's standing at the crossroad, the most monumental point of redemptive history. All three of these covenants are about to be fulfilled. Now, again, the first covenant that Zacharias talks about here in his song, his uh, song that is uh, going to be fulfilled, or at least potentially fulfilled, is the Davidic covenant. And that's the covenant that God made with David out of 2 Samuel 7, where God promised to David that he would have a greater son who would have an everlasting kingdom. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's God speaking, I will, I will, I will. You see it again in Psalm 89. You see it again in Isaiah 9. The promise to David that he would have a great name that he would have rest from his enemies, that one from his line would come and, uh, and reign over God's people in the world uh, from Jerusalem during the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom, and an earthly Jerusalem, and then uh, reign forever as the eternal king uh, in the eternal state. And, of course, that one who is coming is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And this is the covenant that God made with, with David. It's unilateral. It's unconditional. It's irrevocable. It's everlasting. Again, verse 69, he, God, has raised up, Zechariah says, he has raised up, this is what God has done, a horn of salvation in the house of David, his servant. That term horn, I told you, really speaks of power. It's speaking about the the horn of salvation, the power of the coming redeemer, uh, the deliverer, the rescuer, the Messiah, the one who's been promised from the Old Testament, uh, the righteous branch of David, the one who will come from David's house, from his loins and from his lineage. Verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. I mean, God has promised to send a deliverer from Genesis 3.15 on, right? And it's interesting, that word old, there is the word aeon. It means forever or perpetuity of time, eternity. So it's the promise that God has made really before the foundation of the world, literally from eternity, that he would send this strong redeemer. Uh, if you have the uh, New King James, it says, uh, he ha- as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since uh, the world began. So he's just saying, look, this is an eternal promise that God is making. is coming to fruition in time, verse 71, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. So with the arrival of the king uh, imminent, uh, Zechariah believes that the kingdom is also imminent, right? The promised king of David is coming, one who'd establish a, king, uh, a kingdom and his royal throne would uh, sit in Jerusalem and reign forever, bringing Israel freedom from all of its enemies something they'd not experienced in an awful long period of time. Right? They're always being oppressed. They're run over by the Babylonians and run over by the Medo-Persians, the idolatrous the Greeks, and now Rome. Always, Israel's always been besieged by enemies, always been run and ruled by those who hated them. But now Zechariah is excited because he sees the promised king, the promised Davidic kingdom is about to be realized, and that would free them from all that. The nation would be free. The nation would be sovereign. The nation would have a sovereign king and one who would rule over the greatest kingdom that the world has ever seen, not just over Israel, but over the entire planet, over the entire world, a king that would come and rule with a rod of iron in an everlasting, never-ending kingdom in time that would go on to the eternal state. That's what God promised David out of Second Samuel 7, Second Samuel 23, verse 5, that speaks to the covenant of David. 
I think there are about 40 Old Testament passages that speak to David's uh, kingdom, the promises of David of a Messiah who would come from him, rule over Israel, and, and then his rule would extend across the world. That's what the Jews had been waiting for. That's what they had been hoping for, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And again, Zacharias was so excited, but the one thing that he doesn't see, which obviously he can't, is he can't see the unthinkable. He can't see that the unthinkable would happen, that when the Messiah actually showed up, that Israel would execute their Messiah. They would reject their king, therefore postponing all of the kingdom promises. Now, I think you get you should probably do this at some point. You get a little bit of good insight in understanding that a little more if you were to take up Psalm 89 and read the first 37 verses of Psalm 89. You will see that it's, uh, it details and defines the nature of the promised king and his kingdom. But then the psalm from that point forward kind of takes a downward note. From there on, it's kind of a dirge because all the promises are not yet realized. Not yet realized. They're postponed, right, for a future, again, even beyond our day because of Israel's rejection of her king. But they'll come to pass because God has made promises to David that he will fulfill. Right? I've told you this before, but Israel's disobedience will never cancel or nullify the promises that God makes. One day his king will return his king will establish an earthly kingdom just as God had promised David. And in that day, the remnant from Israel will come to repentance and faith in the Savior because God does not forget his word. God will never forget his covenant that he's made with David. So again, Zacharias in the context uh, thinks all of this is going to happen immediately. The, the forerunner's there. Uh, the king is on the way. He's shortly to arrive, establish his kingdom. Again, not seeing uh, the unseeable, the rejection of the Messiah. Now, this is what the Old Testament saints were always looking forward to. This is what they were waiting for. They always believed that when Messiah came, he would come and he would sit on a literal throne and rule over a literal uh, kingdom. And, and again, Israel would be with uh, uh, the king of Israel with Jerusalem in the very center uh, of that rule. And again, that rule would exist and extend across the entire world. And there would be righteousness and peace and that would dominate. And by the way, that's what the New Testament believers believed also. <clears throat> just put a mark there and, and just turn over. Let me just show you something really quick on a little bit of a, a rabbit trail, but I think it's helpful. Go over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 1, which is, of course, the first post-resurrection appearance uh, uh, or account. First uh, post-resurrection account. A Acts 1, <clears throat> the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after uh, he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, to these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what, that must have been a pretty good Bible study to attend. Right? I, I bet the house was packed, so to speak. Forty days with Jesus, and Jesus speaking about the things of the kingdom of God. Now listen, and I mean this most graciously, but listen. If Jesus did not believe in a literal, physical kingdom, this might be a good place to tell them that. Just saying. Even given the fact that the nation had rejected him, that they've executed him, even in the midst of Jewish disobedience, Jewish apostasy, this would have been a great place for Jesus to launch into an amillennial view of the future that there will be no earthly kingdom, if that's what he believed. But he doesn't. And if his apostles uh, didn't believe in a literal physical kingdom, then they would have never asked the question that they ask in verse 6. So when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord... Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? You will note that Jesus did not reply, where in the world did you get that idea? That's pretty dumb. To think that there's going to be a literal physical kingdom on the earth that I would restore for Israel and for the world. Where'd you come up with that idea? Where'd you come up with that concept? Don't you know that the church will replace the nation of Israel? Don't you know that what we're in right now, this is the kingdom? And that I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to rule in the hearts of those who believe in me until I return and usher in the eternal state? But he didn't say that. If he was an amillennialist, then this might be a good place for him to reveal that. Again, just saying, but he doesn't. 
Verse 6, the question they ask is, Lord, is it this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, the word restore there, according to a Jewish source, is a technical eschatological term for the end time. So the question, in essence, is this. Is this the end time when you are restoring the kingdom of Israel, or the kingdom to Israel? Again, 40 days of instruction about the kingdom. Nothing about the church replacing Israel. Nothing about the church being the new Israel. Nothing about canceling all the kingdom promises to David and to Israel. Because once God speaks, he keeps his word. He fulfills his promises to David, and they knew that. They knew there would be a literal physical kingdom for Israel and for the world, but it's still future at our present time, still coming. They just wanted to know, is now the time? Is this it? Are you going to bring it to fruition now? Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Now, the word fixed there is an aorist middle, which means fixed for himself. So this, uh, this time uh, that he has fixed for himself is speaking of God in his own glory. It speaks to the fact that God will have his king, who has been dishonored throughout history, in time. Uh, he will be glorified throughout history, in, uh, or he will be glorified in time, because he's been dishonored in time. And God's own authority is going to carry this out, ha- uh, have this accomplished by his own word. So again, if there was, uh, uh, there's, uh, if there was uh, no earthly kingdom, physical kingdom, this would have been a good Jesus place for Jesus to point that out. But there's no all-millennial theology in Jesus' theology. There's no replacement theology in the theology of Jesus because it's absolutely foreign. It's foreign to the Old Testament thinking, and it's foreign, uh, completely foreign to the New Testament uh, way of thinking. It is imported in historically. I won't go there, but that's where it comes from. It's not coming from the Bible. And by the way, I won't go very far here, but if you were to actually speak to somebody who is like a rabbi or somebody who is an Old Testament scholar and actually understands those promises, one of the reasons they will refuse to accept Jesus as the Messiah, as the king, is because when they look around, they go, this, my friends, is not the kingdom. Right? This is not the kingdom. And all millennial theology teaches this is the kingdom. And you can look around and see this is not... Uh, this is not the kingdom. So this is important to understand. Now go back to our study here in Luke. Zacharias understands it. He gets the Davidic covenant. Luke chapter 1. So the first covenant he speaks to is the Abrahamic covenant. The second in his song of praise here is the covenant that God made with Abraham. Verse 72, and it's tremendous. To show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. Now, we just started into this last time, then we ran out of time. Zacharias, again, he's praising God because he knows the Savior is coming. He knows that God is fulfilling his promises. And listen, he is rejoicing because he knows that mercy is on the way. Mercy is on the way to show mercy towards our fathers. Now, again, stop and remember uh, that the, the fact that Abraham, before God calls him, he is Abram. Abram. He's living in a place called Ur, Ur the Chaldees. He is a pagan idolater. He's a moon worshiper. And listen, he was not looking for God. He wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for him. Because that's the nature of God. That's the character of God. The nature uh, and the primary nature of the Abrahamic covenant is preeminently it is a covenant of mercy because God is gracious. God is compassionate to the undeserving. There is a stream of mercy that begins with Abraham and then flows down throughout the centuries that provides forgiveness and redemption and eternal blessings for all those who have faith in God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah. So in contrast to the Davidic covenant, which is universal in scope, the Abrahamic covenant is primarily national because it's promising blessings to the nation of Israel first and foremost. But while the covenant was made with Israel, the promises of mercy and blessing extend to all the nations, to all the people, all the ethnos of the earth, if they believe by faith just like Abraham did, if they believe by faith in Christ. So God made all these promises right to Abram, or Abraham, long before the David lived, back when there were no Jews, back when there was no nation of Israel, just one man, Abram, Abraham. 
And again, from his loins will come many people. The scripture says they'll be like the sands of the sea. They'll be like the stars of the heavens. So many will his descendants be. And from Abram or Abraham comes uh, Isaac and then Jacob. And God renames Jacob Israel. God has a desire to treat men in mercy. And he's proved that over and over again throughout the entire history of mankind. And through this man, Abraham, God again comes to the nation of Israel, whom, through whom God will channel his wonderful uh, revelation of blessing through a seed that will come from his loins, right? The Messiah comes from the line of uh, Abraham, right? From the, uh, from the Jewish people. And that's the blessing that God wants to extend to the entire world, the, the, the mercy, so again, in the covenant that God makes with Abram or Abraham, we don't have time to go into it, but in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, there is a defined land. There is a promised deliverance from his enemies. There's protection. Uh, there's the blessings to the nation of Israel that would come from God. And then again, blessings to all the nations through the nation of Israel itself. Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of mercy. It's about mercy. It's about righteousness. It's about holiness. And again, it's about the seed who will come and bring salvation to God's people, the nation of Israel, and all those who believe by faith. So again, when God calls Abram, he's living in Ur of the Chaldees. He's an unbeliever. And God comes and he commands him to leave his country, to leave his relatives, and then go to the land that God will show him, Genesis 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it for you. Genesis 12, 1. <clears throat> the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless all those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse, and all the families, and you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? Land, seed, and blessing. Bless, blessing for him, blessing for the entire world. God ratifies the covenant again in uh, chapter 15 of the book of Genesis, and again verse seven, or chapter 17 of Genesis. It is the most significant Old Testament covenant. It is retold, reiterated eight times in the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, 22, 26, 28, 35. It's an important covenant. And God ratifies the covenant by blood, signifying that it's a pretty serious deal. It's a pledge that was taken. Uh, I told you when people make covenants, one of the things that they would do is they would take the life of an animal and, and split it right down the middle. And the two people who would make that covenant would walk right between those two halves of the people or two halves of the animal, signifying that if one of us should break this covenant, it, it, this uh, kind of dramatic scene here may, ha be, may happen to me if I break my end of the covenant. So it's a, it's a great picture, right? May it be done to me what has been done to these animals if I break my half of the covenant. But the thing is, with God here, in Genesis 15, he puts Abraham to sleep. There's a divine anesthesia given. And God comes himself like a burning bush or like a burning lamp, and he alone passes through the halves of these animals by himself. So that means that the Abrahamic covenant is unilateral. It's unconditional. It's irrevocable. It's God pledging to himself by himself. It's not dependent upon Abraham. It's not dependent upon Abraham's obedience or his uh, uh, descendants' obedience. It's something that God has promised to himself, by himself, for himself, for his glory, that he's going to do and he's going to carry out. He's going to extend mercy to the nations. God covenanting with himself, ratifying him by blood, just like the new covenant will be ratified by the blood of Christ. And this, too, is an everlasting covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was not fulfilled has not yet been fulfilled fully has been in part but not fully because there's a promise of land seed and blessing to the world but it's not been fulfilled yet and the covenant won't be fulfilled in total until the messiah comes a second time it can't happen until the nation is delivered from their enemies to show mercy towards our fathers to remember his holy covenant Verse 73, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. Verse 74, to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So again, part of the Abrahamic covenant includes a time of prosperity, a time of peace, a lack of assault, lack of a fear of attack, a time of holiness and righteousness when the nation will be a blessing to other nations. And a land will be given to them. And in that day they'll be delivered. They'll serve the Lord without fear. In that day the Lord will rule over the whole world. And it will be a day of holiness and a day of righteousness. But it's not yet been fulfilled. It's still partly future. It has to be fulfilled, however, because God's made the promise that he will do these things. 
And again, at the time of the New Testament, the Abrahamic covenant was still not yet fulfilled because at the time, the land was occupied by the Romans. And Israel was living only in a very small portion of the land that was originally promised to uh, Abraham by God that he would give them. And there was conflict on all sides, just like there is now with the nation of Israel. They don't know peace. They've never experienced peace. They've never experienced, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. But one day they will. One day they must. Because this is what God says. God, again, has made promises to Abraham. God has made promises to David. They are unilateral, meaning that God alone has made these promises by his own name, and his character will see that they are fulfilled. They are everlasting, unconditional promises, covenant promises that will be and must be fulfilled at some point because, again, God's word demands it. And Zacharias knew this. Right? Zacharias knew that all these promises and their fulfillment were tied to the coming of the Messiah. And he knew that the Messiah was soon to come. He was on the horizon because Zacharias is literally holding in his arms his son, uh, the forerunner. So the redemption of Israel is coming. The Messiah is on the way. It's in the womb. He's in the womb of Mary. And again, the Jewish people are living in anticipation of all these covenantal promises that they've been waiting for centuries for them to come to pass. And now he stands at this point, Zechariah stands at this point that is critical in redemptive history, and seemingly from his perspective, they're all about to come to fruition. They're all about to be fulfilled. But again, there's a barrier. He doesn't see what he can't see, obviously. He can't see the rejection, but there's a barrier. While God chose to work to the nation of Israel, again, uh, that would come from the loins of Abraham, the nation was always struggling with disobedience. The nation was always failing to respond by faith to the revealed word of God. Their lives were full of uh, idolatry and uh, 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 empty ritualistic outward worship. And again, ultimately, they're going to reject the Messiah, the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that disobedience led, obviously, to their chastening instead of their blessing. But again, the, the, the rebellion of the nation of Israel will never neglect the promises of God. Because if you look at the, nation of, uh, the history of the nation of Israel, it's quite interesting right? I, I'm not saying that the nation that's back in Israel is, the, is a theocratic nation. I'm not saying that. But the people back in that land, the Jewish people back in that land is pretty significant, I think, uh, in, in the history of redemptive uh, uh, events. And, and, and they've been in rebellion, and yet they still continue to exist as a people. But they've been punished a lot throughout the history of the world. And throughout the history of the world, there have been many, many different men who have tried to raise up and eradicate the people of God, the nation of Israel, their religion and their culture, yet they still exist today. That's important. And they're in the land, but they're only occupying a portion of the land that God promised to Abraham. In the future, the Bible tells us there's going to be a time, time during the time of the tribulation where God again is going to come and he's going to rescue the nation, this time from the Antichrist and his attempt to annihilate them. But we're told that Christ will come and he will rescue and uh, they will, uh, there will be a believing remnant in the end at the time of the tribulation who will see that Jesus is the Christ, their king. Now again, the people of Israel have, have, will never possess the land as promised in the Abrahamic covenant. They'll never know peace until the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, takes his throne and rules in Jerusalem on the seat of David when he comes and establishes his earthly kingdom as God promised that he would. They'll never know that until Christ comes back. But God has promised his word that he will fulfill these things, and God has said that he has not rejected his people, right? Romans 11.1, 1, Paul asked that question. Has God rejected his people whom he has foreknown? The, the answer is may it never be. Right, so you got this problem. you got the promises of God, but you got this problem, and again, it's rebellion. So as I told you, there's a third covenant here in this story in Zechariah's Song of Praise. It's not mentioned by name, but the components are there. Now, Zechariah, again, I think he's looking at his son. I, I, I just do. Verse 76. He's looking down at his son, and he gives, again, he knows he's the one who's going to call the nation back to repentance. Verse 76. And the component parts of this other covenant, this third covenant of the story, of course, is the new covenant. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord. Right as he comes to verse 77, Zacharias begins to introduce the new covenant. Right? He introduces the, the nature of the new covenant. Verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Again, there's nothing um, 
specific, uh, specifically regarding the forgiveness of sins in either the Davidic or the Abrahamic covenant, but there is in the new covenant, again, which allows God to display his nature, his character. Verse uh, 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the way of peace. So forgiveness of sins, tender mercy, the sunrise from on high visiting us to uh, those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death that guide our feet to peace. That's new covenant language. Now, it's not just that Israel has a barrier uh, to uh, God's blessing, but it's all men, and it's this barrier called sin. And it's a barrier that is insurmountable by human effort. Mankind's greatest problem is not physical. It's not social. It's not psychological. It's not uh, 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 political. Mankind's problem is that we're all sinners. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And again, the fact that we all die physically is evident that, of that fact, proof positive of the fact that we're infected with this thing called sin. It's an operative reality in everyone's life. It is a pervasive presence. It is a power. It is an authority in our lives that manipulates and influences us and controls our behavior because it drives us from the inside out. The Bible says that all of us have evil, sinful, defiled hearts. Uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Paul in Romans 3, you're familiar with it. He gives a comprehensive description drawn out of Old Testament passages of mankind's endemic, systemic uh, sinfulness. Romans 3 and 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. It's indwelling sin. And indwelling sin manipulates and controls our behavior. And no amount of willpower or determination or attempting to obey God can ever overcome sin's power and allow us to stand right before God. Paul goes on in Romans 3 and 20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through the the law comes the knowledge of sin. We can never stand right or just before God by trying to keep the law, by trying to obey external rules. By, uh, because the law really, the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law really demonstrates our inability to obey. That's the purpose of the law. Therefore, showing our desperate need of mercy, grace, forgiveness. Because the truth is, the law exacerbates our sin, which again leads to our death. And what, do you, what do I mean by that? Well, you understand that word, right? It, it, it accelerates it. I mean, sin is so deep within us, you know the story. Sin is so deep within us, when you see a sign that says, don't touch, you want to touch it. It says, wait, wet paint. You know, you want to touch it. You want to see. The sign says, stay behind the line. You say, well, I'm going to go to the line. I'm perhaps going to step over the line. Sign says, don't step on the grass. That's the first thing you want to do. There's something inside us that inherently rises up and says, who in the world are you to tell me what to do? That's indwelling sin. Speed limit. Sign says 55, and we drive. Well, none of us can keep the law, right? Nobody drives 55, unless you're in a 35-mile zone. In the Old Testament, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, right? uh, that we may live. And who in the room can raise their hand and say, that they've perfectly loved God with the entirety of their lives, the entirety of their soul and their heart at all times and every moment. If not, then you're a lawbreaker. And if you say you have, then you're a liar. The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt have no other God before me. The first of the Ten Commandments. Who in the room can say that they perfectly kept God preeminent at all moments in their life? Never for one moment, for one nanosecond, straying for him never setting their affection on anything or anyone more than him, even for the briefest moment of time? And again, the answer is no one. Therefore, we all stand condemned, all stand as lawbreakers, sinners. Again, death, the wage that we have earned because of our sin, because God is holy and must be treated as holy always, always. I don't know that we get that. Always he must be treated as holy. Now, again, the truth of the matter is the law of the Ten Commandments were never given uh, for us to keep to earn our salvation. They were given to keep or to show us that we can't, to display our sinfulness, our helplessness. Again, if you break the first one, there's no reason to go or no need really to go into the other nine, right? Because you're already a lawbreaker. 
So again, Paul says in the New Testament, Galatians 3 and 24, the law was given in order to become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Again, God's law, is his uh, holy law is, uh, is perfect. It, it points out the fact that we're not. It points out the fact that we are in desperate need of help. The law points out the fact that we're all guilty. Now, of course, the law was given at the Mosaic, at the Mosaic Covenant, uh, and I alluded to it earlier. We can't go into it in, in such detail because it's just we don't have the time, right? But it was that God promised at Sinai that there'd be blessings for obedience and there'd be punishment uh, for, for disobedience. And no amount of willpower or determination uh, could ever allow anyone or enable anyone to perfectly obey God's law. Israel experienced that over and over in their, in their history. Boy, and I, get the, I think the people had the best intentions. Right? They, they, wanted to, they loved God's law, and they wanted to obey his word, and, and they even sealed it with their own blood. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read out of Exodus 24. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, that he had, and then he rose early in the morning and built an altar to the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars of the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men to the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls and peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will not be disobedient, or we will be obedient. Right? So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance to all these words. That's out of Exodus 24. Well, they had the best intentions, I think, of obeying God. But because of their inward sinfulness, their indwelling sin, what happens in chapter 32? That's the golden calf incident, right? Sin had such control over them and their idolatry, their morality led to divine judgment there at the golden calf incident, and 3,000 men of Israel died that day under judgment. And again, you see that story repeated in the history of Israel over and over again. A nation that was called to obey God, that wanted to obey God, but they couldn't. A nation that was promised blessings if they did obey, and, and punishment if uh, they were promised blessings if they would obey, and if they were disobedient, there was a warning of, of punishment. But over and over again, in spite of those realities, the people... Uh, even in spite of the fact that the people far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord, they still forsook the Lord. Now, good intentions can never keep the law. Good intentions can never keep the nation of Israel from slipping into apostasy. It was hopeless. So the entire nation is hopeless. There's nowhere, no way possible for them to receive the blessings of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants because they kept violating God's law in the Mosaic covenant. And again, there's no provision in the Mosaic Covenant to deal with sin. So the people in a desperate situation, desperately in need of help, desperately in need of forgiveness, desperately in need of power that comes from God to obey. Now that's where the New Covenant comes in. Because the New Covenant is the personal work of God. The personal work of God to forgive sin, to cleanse the heart, and provide that spiritual power that men need. Now the New Covenant is recorded in uh, uh, Jeremiah 31 and other places and obviously, it was written centuries before uh, the birth of Christ in Jeremiah 31. But I'm going to have you turn to the New Testament since we're in the New Testament. And we'll go to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8. Because Hebrews chapter 8 really is an exposition of uh, Jeremiah 31. Hebrews 8 verse 7 says, For if the first covenant had been faultless... <clears throat> there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Now, the writer here is not saying that there were problems and errors or errors with the Old Covenant itself. But he was saying that there's nothing in the Old Covenant that produced perfect internal obedience to God. The Old Covenant lacked transformational power. Some people obeyed God, and some, or sometimes people obeyed God, and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes people would want to do God's will, and sometimes they wouldn't. You take David, for example. He, he was a man who no doubt loved the Lord his God. Uh, he poured out his heart towards God and, and loved him immensely. And then the very next moment, he is committing murdery, murder and adultery. So the writer here in the book of Hebrews is saying that there's not a provision or a power uh, to control the heart, the passions of the heart under the uh, Old Covenant. It lacks internal motivation. It's all external, rules and regulations. Again, that's the problem with rules and regulations. I talked about that this morning. 
the old covenant isn't enough. It's not good enough. It needs a new covenant. So the writer, again, uh, here in the book of Hebrews, is going to quote out of Jeremiah 31, verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. Verse 8, for finding fault with them, that being the people of God, not the law of God, but the people, the people's inability to live up to the promises they said they would keep. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect or establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, the word new here is not new like chronos, like on your watch regarding the time, but it's kainios, which means new in, in uh, substance, new in respects to kind, unprecedented, novel, unheard of. God says, I will effect or I will establish a new kind of covenant, something unprecedented, something that, again, God is doing, something that God has ordained, something that God has authored. Behold, the days are coming when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, Verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Again, that's the Mosaic covenant. When God called uh, uh, Moses up to the mountain, gave him the law. Uh, again, in essence, God said, do this, you'll live. Don't do this, you'll, or don't do this thing. Uh, do this thing, you'll live. Don't do this thing, you'll die, right? Uh, blessings for obedience, promises of uh, cursing for disobedience. He says, they did not continue in my covenant. So again, the people were disobedient. They forfeited the blessings of the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, they're going to be punished. They would try to obey, but they couldn't because they had no power for obedience. Again, one day they were walking with God, the next day they weren't. One moment they're walking with God, the next moment they weren't. Their heart wasn't true. They they wanted to obey God, but then their disobedience would come. And with that disobedience would come cursing and judgment. And I, he, the writer goes on and says, I do not care for them, says the Lord, verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's a dramatic transformational change. It's a change in a relationship. It's a change in nature. It's a change in the inner man. It's a new disposition towards God. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a new heart. Right, I'll give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. I, I will return, and they will return to me with their whole heart. So God's going to do a work. Now, keep your hand right there, or just put a mark in your Bible right there, and turn back, and let me show you uh, Ezekiel 36, because I think you probably need to see that one. In Ezekiel 36, <clears throat> another place where the <clears throat> new covenant is referenced, referenced. Uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Listen, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God says, I'm going to do a heart work. I'm going to do, I'm going to take that hard, stony heart uh, that is God resistant, a God resistant heart. A heart that could be easily drawn away into disobedience. A heart that could be easily drawn away into idolatry. I'm going to remove it. I'm going to cleanse you from that, from all your filthiness. And I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a soft heart. I'm going to give you a heart that desires God and has the power to obey God. And the power to obey God, not out of keeping external rules, but out of a heart that loves God. A heart that is thankful. A heart that is new because there's a complete transformation in the inner man. Verse 27, I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. That we, we, is what we would call in the New Testament regeneration, right? That's regeneration. That's being born again. I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. Again, it's being born from above. This is being made a new man in Christ. This is where we are new creatures. Old things past have gone and all things become new. Verse 28, and you will live in the land that I give to your forefathers. And you will be my people and I will be your God. So it's a complete transformational change. That's what the new covenant promises. A new heart, a new man. A man different from the old rebellious one. That man is gone. Now go back to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 8. Verse 10, this is the covenant. 
that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizens and everyone his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the great. Everyone's going to know the Lord because the Holy Spirit's now going to dwell in the believer, within each believer. I mean, again, it's a wonderful promise that no Old Testament saint ever knew, the permanent indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit. And again, that happens on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. Verse 12, For I'll be merciful to their iniquities, I'll remember their sins no more. Again, the new covenant provides man what he desperately needs, it's forgiveness of sin. Again, something the old covenant couldn't do. Now, the new covenant was made first with the nation of Israel, I understand that. Because there's still, and I paused there previously to point out the fact there's still land promises, physical promises. Ezekiel 36, verse 28, and you will live in the land that I gave your forefathers. But the spiritual promises of blessing and forgiveness of sin, the internal transformational promises extend to everyone who believe by faith. As someone has rightly said, the church presently participates in the new covenant while national Israel will fulfill the new covenant in the future. And I think that's a good statement. We presently participate in it by faith. We receive those internal transformational blessings by faith, but they are still tied to the new covenant. There are still national promises that Israel has to fulfill that will be fulfilled in the nation of Israel future. Because God keeps his word. Now, the new covenant is not based on us. It's not based on us keeping rules and regulations. It's not external. It's internal. It's what God is doing, work in our hearts, and it comes from the inside out for those who belong to God. And it results in true worship, true worship from a heart, from the heart. And it's God who does this. It's because the person of the Holy Spirit is now personally indwelling in us. So it's just tremendous good news found in the new covenant. All the other things that the other covenants lack are found here in the new covenant, a new heart, a new nature, internal transformational change, the power to obey God, fellowship with God, the indwelling of the person of the Holy Spirit, and the forgiveness of sin. They all unlock that truth, the new covenant, all unlock the blessings of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants. These are crucial, right? And these cancel out all the condemnation. The new covenant cancels out the condemnation of the Mosaic law. Again, the new covenant provides provisional, positional uh, uh, change before God because of forgiveness of sin, deliverance from sin's power, deliverance from sin's penalty, and ultimately one day will be delivered from the very presence of sin. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-four: For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin, I will remember no more. Now go back to uh, Luke, and we'll wrap this all up. So again, there's this third covenant in this Benedictus, this song of praise from Zacharias. It's the, uh, the new covenant. And again, in Zacharias's mind, I know it's probably a little hard for us to grasp all of this, but in Zacharias's mind, all this stuff is swirling. He understands it. He gets the picture. He understands the covenants that are about to be fulfilled when Messiah comes. And, and, and with the Messiah's forerunner in his arms, he, he's breaking out in songs of praise. I've already referenced the Davidic, uh, so having already referenced the Davidic and the Abrahamic covenants, he starts to magnify the new covenant. Verse 76, you child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Well, how's the, how's the forerunner going to do that? What is John the Baptist going to do when he comes in the world? What's his mission? His mission is a message of repentance, right? He came preaching baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sin, Luke 3 and 3. Matthew 3 and 2, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's how he was going before the Lord to prepare his ways. He, he, he was the preacher of repentance. Now, I don't know, but repentance wasn't a very popular message then, and it's not a very popular message in the day in which we live. The people of Israel were, in essence, looking for a conqueror, right? Uh, uh, the king, David, they're looking for that guy who would come, this hero would come and defeat all their enemies and establish this uh, kingdom and bring fulfillment of all the prom- promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. But John says, look, before that can happen, every man needs to face the reality of their sin. Every man needs to repent and seek forgiveness that is provided only in the new covenant. And again, one day soon it will be ratified by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross in his one-time sacrificial substitutionary death, right, that provides redemption throughout history for all who would repent and believe by uh, faith alone through the person of Jesus Christ alone. 
So he understands it. He says, you child are going to be the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord, prepare his ways. So John's message is repent. And it's repent before it's too late. Every man needs to turn away from their sin. Every man needs to seek forgiveness. Religion isn't going to save you. Going to the temple isn't going to save you. Going to church isn't going to save you. Being born in a so-called Christian nation isn't going to save you. The message is every man needs to repent. The Lord is coming. You better get ready. He's going to come and deal with sin. Verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Right? If you're going to receive forgiveness of sin, again, you have to first admit the need that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Right? Again, the Bible teaches that God's holy. He demands perfection. The Bible teaches it only takes one sin to make a guilty sinner perish eternally. The Bible, again, teaches that all men are sinners by birth, by practice, by action, by divine declaration. And again, men don't like that message. In fact, men reject that message. They fight against it. John chapter 3, verse 19 says that this is the judgment. The light is coming to the world. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. The light is coming to the world, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John says, look, men love their sin. They don't want to give up their sin. They want to hold on to their sin. Men try to rationalize their sin. They try to say, well, look, I'm not as bad as the guy sitting next to me, but the other guy sitting next to you is not the standard God is in his holiness. And God says no one's perfect, not one man. God says there's none righteous, no, not one. God says all have sinned, all fall short of his glory, all fall short of God's absolute demand of perfection. But again, the Bible also teaches that God offers forgiveness for those who would agree with God, for those who would repent, those who would turn from their sin and agree with God in their status, their condition. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sin. So this is the prophet of God. He doesn't speak his own message. He speaks God's message. That if salvation is going to come to men, it's going to come God's way, not man's way. It's going to come God's way, not man's way. Proverbs sixteen twenty five. There's a way which seems right to man, but the end is death. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way it is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. If salvation comes to men, it only comes by God's way, God's mean, God's method, God's person. Not through effort, not through religious systems. It only comes through repentance and faith in the Savior. You will go on before the Lord, prepare his ways to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sin. Let me tell you what, that's a tremendous statement, that salvation is even possible. That salvation is even possible, The forgiveness of sin is available. Not because men deserve it, not because men have earned it, not because they can work for it, because of God and his kindness. God who justifies the ungodly, the ungodly and he does it as a gift. There's, a, there's, there's forgiveness. There's escape from the judgment to come in the presence of a holy God if we would but humble ourselves and again turn away from our sin, repent, and accept the salvation that God has provided through his Son. And again, Zacharias understands that. Now, why would God save? Why would a holy God do that? Why would a, God, a holy God grant salvation? Why would he... What would, what would make salvation possible? What is it that makes God do this? What motivates him to provide salvation? Verse 78 says, because of the tender mercy of our God. Again, salvation comes to men not because of our efforts, not because we deserve it, but because of the tender mercy of our God. It's a tremendous statement. The word tender is kind of a funny word. It's blank none. It literally translates something to do with the bowels or the guts. Uh, the innards, uh, it's a word that was talking about deep inward emotions, the tender mercy, ilios, kindness, goodness. The reason that God offers salvation, the forgiveness of sin, is that deep down inside him in his inward parts, there's a deep-seated inward desire to show mercy to men. A deep-seated inward desire to show favor towards sinners who are in rebellion against him. He has an intense internal desire to be compassionate to men. And all through the Bible, there are repeated references to God's goodness, his compassion, his mercy. And mercy is a glorious attribute of God that's described as tender, rich, great, 
Again, from the inward bowels of God, he wants to display mercy. He wants to relieve man's misery. He wants to relieve the trouble that sin has got us into. He wants to exhibit his loving kindness, his forgiveness towards us. And most amazingly, that truth is that, again, God's kindness and compassion is not just extended to his friends, it's extended to his enemies. His kindness is extended to his enemies. The Bible says in Romans 5, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us and while we were sinners. God demonstrates his tremendous kindness towards his enemies, towards the greatest of sinners. His great mercy, his covenant mercy, his abundant mercy, his everlasting mercy, his rich mercy, his full mercy, his tender mercy. If God would have dealt with us justly, he could have just left us in our sin. He could have punished us in our sin and been absolutely just in doing so. But the reality is that God is for sinners. God is for sinners. God has a deep compassion for sinners, a love for the lost, for those who would repent and those who turn away from their sin and place their faith in Christ. You child will be called the prophet of the Most High. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, give his people a knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God. It's only those who reject God's tender mercy that will face his wrath. They will taste the full fury of his wrath. Because again, if you reject compassion, mercy, and grace through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, justice and God's holiness demands that your sin will be punished and dealt with. So Zacharias is just, again, he's just overflowing. He knows that the Messiah is on the way. He knows all these covenant blessings are going to be fulfilled here very soon. And he just starts speaking with rich Old Testament metaphors and messianic theological symbolism. And I'll try to run through this kind of quick here, but verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the path, to the way of peace. I mean, all that terminology, the sunrise from on high uh, is an Old Testament uh, uh, picture of the Messiah. Uh, there was the last uh, book of the Old Testament, Malachi, uh, that says the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings. We see it in the New Testament. Christ is talked about as the morning star, the bright morning star. Uh, uh, the sunrise from on high is going to visit us. And then he says, to those who sit in darkness. I mean, darkness in the Bible is used as a metaphor of man's sinfulness. Sometimes it describes our error, uh, our ignorance. Sometimes our moral condition, wickedness. Sometimes it just demonstrates or symbolizes sin. It's a place of punishment. And the place of eternal punishment is a place called hell in eternal darkness, outer darkness. God is light. There's no darkness in him at at all. And so the prophets are always saying, look, he, the Messiah, is the light of the nations. He's the one whose God will send to be the, the, the to open blind eyes. He's the one who will be sent to, to carry out, deliver the prisoners from the dungeon, from those who dwell in the darkness of the prisons. That's us. We, we're fallen men. We live in darkness. We grope in the darkness. We need light. There's no human solution. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ who's the light of the nations. The sunrise from on high who will visit us and shine to those who sit in darkness. I mean, I could go on and on, but because of the time, just shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. I mean, again, that's all of us, right? We're all into that condemnation. We all don't know how long we're going to live. Every day, you guys know who work in the medical field, people who are young die, people who are old die, people who weren't expecting to die, die. We all sit with this shadow of death, with this condemnation of death over us. But God, because of his tender mercy, has visited us with the sunrise from on high, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, in the last phrase, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Right? Peace. And that's exactly the first portion of Scripture when Jesus opened his public ministry. He read out of uh, Isaiah, right? Luke chapter 4 tells us he took the book out of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, because he is the Prince of Peace coming to time, the light of the nations. 
all again sent because of the tender mercy of our God. It's just a tremendous, tremendous portion. There's a lot more, honestly, we could talk about, but that's good, huh? Isn't it just good to see the tender mercy of God and see how Zechariah just gets it, that all of these promises are going to be fulfilled in the Messiah, that his son, who is the forerunner, is uh, saying that time is at hand. Now, of course, we know the story he didn't know, that Israel would reject the Messiah. But again, the rebelliousness of the nation of Israel does not cancel out the promises of God. So there is a future that awaits for that people when one day they will see Jesus, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. They will one day realize that Jesus is the Messiah, the King. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for the greatest gift ever given, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ the one who leads us out of darkness to light, the one who takes us to a place of peace, the one who bears our punishment upon Calvary's cross so that we can stand forgiven before you, the one who defeated death and the grave on our behalf so that we might have life. What wonderful truth. We thank you. We praise you. We adore you. In Christ's name, amen.